All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 48. We're almost done with Genesis. That's kind of scary to me. But it's also kind of, it's fun, and it's almost a little bittersweet to be coming to the end of this. My goal this week and two weeks from now, because next week is our conference, right? Am I straight about that in terms of schedule? Next week is our conference, so don't come here next Sunday. I won't be here. Andrew won't be here. The lights will be off. If you open the door, you'll get to meet the police. Um, what? Yeah, we've done that before accidentally. So um, next week, no Genesis. The week after that, whatever I don't get to this morning, we're going to finish. Because the week after that, I go on vacation. And they don't want to do Genesis. So we're going to do something else. And then when I come back, we're going to start on Romans. So when your grandkids are in Talos, we'll still be in Romans. Um, see, I got marriage and mortgage in one sentence right there, Justin. There you go. All right, let's read Genesis chapter 48. Now it came about after these things that Joseph was told, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. When it was told to Jacob, Behold, your son Joseph has come to you, Israel collected his strength and sat up in the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. If you're going to highlight a verse in here, I know this sounds like a weird verse to highlight, but if you're highlighting a verse for, and we'll talk about this in a minute, for how you understand the flow of the Pentateuch and the flow of the Old Testament, it's a really important verse, and we just skip right past it a lot. So just if you were wondering, like, if you make notes in your Bible, which I don't, but if you do, this would be an interesting one, and then later people will be like, why did you highlight that? And you can tell them in a minute. I'll explain to you why I think you should highlight it, but you can highlight it. Verse 5, or verse 5 and 6. But your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours, and they shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Verse 7. Now as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow in the land of Canaan on the journey, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. And Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. And may my name live on in them and the names of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also will become a people, and he also will be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. 
He blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Then he put Ephraim before Manasseh, or sorry, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Stop reading there, and I'll kind of explain my strategy in a minute after we pray. We'll stop reading there. As we move into chapter 49, we'll take it in little bite-sized chunks if we need to read as we go along, depending on where we get time-wise. So let's pray together, and then I'll explain my strategy. Father, thank you for this morning. I'm so grateful to be home and, and home with your church, to be with my brothers and sisters here this morning, and to hear the encouragements from their week. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to be built up as we consider your word. We cause us to, to orient our thoughts and our hopes rightly in the turmoil and the difficulty of this world. May we see Christ. May we fix our hope on you and your promises. Embolden our hearts to that purpose this morning for your glory, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. So my, my strategy in doing this, we have three-ish, 48, 49, and 50 chapters to finish. And my, my hope for you as we move into this part, we've been in kind of the, the travel log and the drama of the Joseph story and uh, the juicy bits, you know, where what's going to happen? Is he going to kill his brothers or not? Of course, you already know the story, so it's maybe not quite as dramatic. But still, we've been in that emotional roller coaster part of this story for a while and now we're getting into kind of the end credits scenes right you know if this was a, a modern movie this would be like these would be the little scenes that you get halfway through the credits if you're brave enough to stay in the movie while they're vacuuming and trying to get you out right so these are the bits that, that wrap up at the end but I don't want us to to skip through this and as I've been trying to think how to to orient you to the purpose of these and how to help me think about this, this end section of Genesis, it just seems good to me that we've been so zoomed in on the details of this family's life and on Joseph's life. It's helpful now to stop for a moment as we think about this and consider this as, as it is in the book of Genesis, as it is in, in someone other's eyes. We've been in kind of the eyes of the narrator and we've been zoomed in watching this unfold in live action, which is really cool. But actually, we're doing that through the vehicle of Moses' narration, right? And what I want to kind of help you reorient to a little bit is how this functions uh, in Moses' thinking. See, we've been, we've been in the present. We've been living alongside Joseph, but we're actually not reading it in the present. We're reading it when Moses wrote it. And Moses probably wrote this at some point while he's on a dusty road in the Sinai Peninsula or near the land. And I want to orient you a little bit towards seeing this through specifically not only our eyes and the narrator's eyes, but Moses' eyes and Moses' audience's eyes, because that's what really matters here. Why do we have this section here if you're this genius writer that Moses is, right? So you know that I love books. Um, you know that if you come to Summer at the Simmons, we start talking about books, that I can talk about books for a very long time. Um, I love books that have just amazing callback of things that they, that they floated early in the book and you don't notice, like, hey, this is going to be really important, and then a book or two later, you're like, wow, 
that was really important. And I didn't see that there. And that's so cool. Like, I love when a, when a writer can artfully disguise an important element of a plot early and then bring it back to bear later. And uh, how do you do that? How do you do that as a writer? Well, you mention things, you mention thematic things or critical things to your plot and, and prominent points along the line so that as you get to view the work as a whole and you go back to do that most delicious thing in the world, to me at least, which is rereading a book after you've read it, right? You read it first and you read it just, you kind of skip through it, and you're like, oh, that's dialogue. I don't care about that. And maybe they kissed it. You know, when I was a, like a 12-year-old boy, you're like, oh, kissing scenes. OK, on we go. I remember once Josiah Reiser and Daniel Nickerson stayed at my house when they were 12, 13, something like that. And they're like, we want to watch The Lord of the Rings. And I was like, it's like 15 hours. And they're like, oh, no, it's not. Yeah, pretty sure it is. No, you haven't seen our version. Oh. Every time like Arwen or Eowyn or anybody that wasn't male and armed to the teeth showed up, and they knew right where to skip. So it was just like, still a long movie, but like four hours of orc scenes, right? It's like, ah, for four hours, OK? Um, I'm now losing where I was going with this point. But um, I love going back and rereading the story. And so maybe you, know, you read it when you were 12, and now you come back to it later. And you get the richness of being like, oh, they did tell us about that earlier, and I didn't notice it, right? You get that just this deep familiarity, and it's they're like, it's old friends that you're reminiscing with about that thing. Like, hey, Sam and I went to, to this restaurant in Alaska a couple weeks ago. And now there's that connection there. And you're like, oh, that's cool. And so you, know, it, you, you look at it in a different way. The Bible's like that. And the Pentateuch is like that. We, we forget sometimes. It's been so long since I did the introduction. Most of you weren't born yet. Um, it's been so long since I did the introduction to this. We forget that Genesis is just a small part of a masterwork. It's a, it's a portion of Moses' masterwork, the, the first great piece of literature, and I would argue one of the greatest pieces of literature ever written. And, and any angle at which you look at it, it stands up to that. But, but the artistry of a work has a point, right? You don't just make something look cool to make it look cool. Well, I suppose people do sometimes. But, um, but it's better when something that looked cool actually accomplishes what it's supposed to do, right? So um, Moses, all of his artistry, all of his talent, all of the skill of this narrative that we've been reading is driving a point home. He's communicating something to someone. And we need to ask these big questions. What, what are the big points that Moses is driving home? That's one question. Also, here's a question that we should be considering. Who did he write this to? To whom is he talking? And, and to understand this thing that we oftentimes in, in biblical interpretation call the original audience is really important for understanding another word that you're used to hearing, authorial intent. Okay? Those two things just refer to this idea of meaning. What did Moses want you to understand when you read that? And, and who is the first you that he wanted to understand this. See, if we understand who the first you is, then we understand how the us you is supposed to understand it and, and, and live in light of it. So, so who did he write this to, and on what purpose did he write this? So I gave you a little bit of a clue. I told you that Moses wrote this probably while he's wandering around the wilderness with annoying people for 40 years, right? So, so give me just an idea. What do you think? Moses wrote this. What are some reasons that Moses might have written these chapters here about Jacob's final blessings? Any thoughts? 
Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's interesting. I didn't read it. I probably should have read for you at the very beginning of, of chapter 49. See, I told you I'd read a little piecemeal, but now Danny has reminded me to read this for you. Look at 49, verse 1. Here's another one that would be helpful to highlight, honestly. 49.1. Then Jacob summoned his sons, family meeting, said, assemble yourselves. This is fascinating. That I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. I don't know, Justin, you've got a big family. Do you ever do that? Say, come on, children, I will tell you what will befall you in the days to come, right? They're like, whoa, Dad. No, <laughs> are we going to ice cream, right? No, this is, but he doesn't just mean like tomorrow. He said, I want to orient you for the future, okay? So thank you, Danny. Other, other thoughts? What's about to happen in between Genesis 50 and Exodus 1? 430 years of slavery, okay? And the sort of ethnically focused slavery, it's dangerous, by the way, to read modern concerns and concepts back into ancient times, but you know what's not really modern? Hating people that aren't like you, okay? And trying to crush them and, and make them not like what they were. So there is a, an ethnic focus to the Egyptians' hatred of the Israelites and of Semitic people in general that they want to crush out of them. So it's everything about their identity that they want to crush out of them for 430 years, right? So there's about to be something that's going to happen here to this fledgling nation that's just now becoming a nation and just now becoming unified that, that is intended to be protected by Jacob's words to Jacob's original audience, which is his sons, and then that's being reflected by Moses' telling to Jacob's descendants 430 years later of what's happened. Okay, so now I'm starting to get more towards my point. Other thoughts before I, I go further? We're going to get so very short distance this morning. That's okay. What other purpose might Jacob and Moses have in mind here? It's okay if you don't think of one, but there's no wrong answers. Yeah, there's lots of wrong answers. There's this, we've been in the weeds in the Joseph story, and then for that, long time before that, in the Jacob story, and even then before that, it's like Russian nesting dolls, right? In the Isaac story and the Abraham story, and we forgot that the Abraham story starts back with this, this one theme that it's picking up from the Genesis story as a whole, which is there's got to be somebody to fix this mess. There's got to be something to fix this mess. Adam dies in hope, but Adam dies. Right? Adam dies because of sin, but he dies in hope because he's promised that there will be one who comes. And he, remember, he names his son, like, maybe it'll be this one. And then every kid after that is named, is it this one? 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 And then all of a sudden we pick up with Abraham all these years down the road. And then we get in the weeds in his life. And we remember still, though, that there's this promise that there will be one who comes from him to do all sorts of things. And now we're starting to fill out all the different things. There will be a deliverer. There will be a one who can rule. There will be one who restores peace and all all of these parts to this, but we can't lose sight of that. Somewhere along the line, this one has to come. And so now we're zooming back out of the weeds and remembering that the whole purpose of this nation and this family isn't just to have lots of grandbabies for Jacob. It's to have one particular great, 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 great grandbaby. There's got to be one who will come. So some purposes for this as we move 
into the prophecy. If you haven't read ahead, just so you know what happened. 48, which I read for you, focuses just on Manasseh and Ephraim. And we'll talk about that at length this morning if we get to it. 49 then talks about all the rest of the tribes. There's little bits, either little bits or big bits, where Jacob tells each one of the, his children what's going to happen with them. And if you've read your Bible through your reading plan this year, or however you choose to do that, you might notice that 48 and 49 have really similar callback themes to another part of the Pentateuch, to another part of Moses' masterwork. They sound a lot like the end of Deuteronomy where Moses blesses the people. And Moses blesses each one of the tribes. Do you remember this at the end of Deuteronomy? Moses' great song that he tells the people, he sings the people about each one of the tribes. Moses picks Jacob's words up here, and he says, 430 years later, I'm going to bless you in the same lanes. Right? I'm going to stay in this lane that Jacob crafted for me, and I'm going to expand and reiterate those blessings to you. So in Moses' perspective, and if you're reading this, as you're about to go into the land and as an Israelite, there's this great mark of continuity between when we last pick up with the people right before slavery and when we pick up with the people again right as they're going into the land, right? It's the deep, this is the deep breath before the plunge, and Joe, uh, Moses picks back up with them as they're, about to, as they're on their ascendancy about to re-enter the land, but he stays in the exact same land. And go read them today at some point. You'll see that the blessings overlap remarkably. They're very, very, very similar which focuses us on a key reason that this exists. Hope. God's people need hope. And God's people will need to understand God's purposes as they are about to enter into a very difficult time in their national existence. There's 430 years of very difficult nation forming that's about to happen they're going to be crushed and battered while they grow and coalesce into a nation and they need to in this time they need to understand what moses i mean what what abraham was promised in genesis 15 i will surely bring you back out i will surely bring you to a land i will surely make you a great people in your land in your place and I'm going to make you a people in these tribes. This is going to be the way you're organized. Right? There's an organization. There's a, this is a nation-forming exercise. This is what your people groups are going to look like. This is what your structure is going to look like. This is what your leadership is going to look like. This is how you're going to hold on to your ethnic identity as you go into the storm. And most importantly, how you're going to hold on to your hope and your hope in your God. One of the great themes we'll see through this is Jacob's constant reiteration of his clinging to God's promises and his constant re-exaltation of God's faithfulness in those promises. It's remarkable. One of the great ways in which God has demonstrated his glory through history, as we said many, many months ago in Genesis 15, is the fact that this works. One of the amazing things with Genesis is that it's verifiable. It happened, okay? The sun comes up in the morning. Genesis told you it did. Lo and behold, it does, right? We're like, well, of course it does. No, it does because he, God said it would, right? No other nation in history has ever survived the amount of 
ethnic destruction that Israel has. It's not because there's something really hardy in their genes. Okay? Lots of people have national pride. Lots of people have ways that they think and act as a corporate group. But I'll tell you something right now, and this is not a political statement. This is just a statement of human life. The United States that I live in in 2023 is not the United States that I was born into in 1986. People act and think differently. Their priorities are different. They dress the same. Um, because people change, and there's forces and cultural pressure all over the place to change that. But for 430 years of attempted destruction, God's people remain laser-focused, even as we'll see if we ever did Exodus, if you go read Exodus, even in the midst of their confusion and their distress and their turmoil, it works. They're still in these people groups and they're still focused on this hope and this God 430 years later. In fact, it's the pressure that coalesces them around this. Do you understand how important that is? The pressure of the world against them is not accidental. It's God's purpose. How do you form a nation in God's view? You bring a people together and you make them unlike the other nations. You make their hope different, their identity different, their God different, their organization different, their thinking different, and you make it really hard for them to be the same as the people around them. Does this sound familiar? This is, in effect, Israel's first constitution. It's not full, but it's a constituting effort. That is, it's an organizing and orienting effort for a people. Now put yourself, I'm not even going to get hard of, hardly any of this done, but that's okay. Put yourself at any point in this story in somebody's shoes. Put yourself 200 years into this in somebody's shoes. Why am I a Reubenite? What does it mean that I'm a Reubenite? What does it mean that we worship this God? Why do we worship this God? Ah, remember? Our great-great-granddad said this was going to be true. But most importantly, put yourself in their shoes as they're going into the land and they're trying to understand we're going to establish ourselves as a separate sovereign nation. We're going to go into this place and we're going to function in a certain way. Why do I listen to him? And why do I marry them? And why don't I marry those people? What's my national story? What's my story? What's, and, and if I understand my story, what's my story and therefore what's my purpose? And how do I fit into this thing that God is doing? This is Moses' effort at zooming us back out and focusing his original audience on the cohesiveness of their story in God's story. Which sounds like a kid's book. But. Now, this is this great moment as we get into the text in 48. I promise we get 15 minutes of exposition here. This is this great moment for the life of Jacob. It's really cool because we've seen some great bits of Jacob, and then we've seen some really rough bits of Jacob, and then we've seen a lot of years of Jacob going, I want to die, and that just gets kind of old, right? But here's the reinvigorated, very old, but reinvigorated Jacob. And I love this because it's this, this sweet end testimony of someone who dies confident in God's grace. It's, really, it's a really beautiful picture. Notice, if you will, how much Jacob's words drip with the praise and the glory of his God. It just overflows out of him. Also, lots of animal imagery, so maybe he lived near a zoo. Um, Joseph was told, your father is sick. 
So he takes his two sons to see him, verse 1. When it was told to Jacob, your son Joseph has come to you, he collected his strength and sat up in bed. You're going to see this throughout this thing. Joseph, Jacob is gathering his final strength to do what he thinks is really important. And notice what Jacob thinks is really important to communicate as at the end of his years. Jacob said to Joseph, this is the, this is the last beginning of the last words. Jacob, how would you sum up your life? What's been the most important thing in your life? You know, you come back from summer vacation and everybody sits around, well, what's the best thing you did this summer, right? This is, what's the best thing you did in your life? How do you sum up your life, Jacob, after all these many long years? What's the first thing off his lips in verse 3? God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan. Notice this appellation for God, this name for God, God Almighty. God, the one, this, this, this word has this sense not only of God's absolute power to deliver him, but it's a, a word that's full of goodness. It's full of the satisfying blessing of God. The, 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 it's just hard to get this in, in translation, but it's a, an idea of just absolute overabundance. So it's his, his good power. God, the, the one who has all power, but not in a scary, bad sort of way, but uh, the, God, the God who has blessed me, the God who has brought all his power to bear for his people. God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan, and you say, I remember that. You do. We just usually call it Bethel, because Jacob renamed the place, right? He renamed Luz to Bethel, and now it worked. We all know it as Bethel, but this is as he's out on the way out of the land when Esau wants to kill him and he's running with just his rock pillow and he sees the ladder. This is this moment. So at the end of his life, Jacob comes back to this moment. God appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and notice what he remembers, this fourfold thing. I will make you fruitful and numerous, a company of peoples. Okay? He's seeing this happen. He's seeing this fruitfulness happen. And I said to you a couple weeks ago, he's the first one of the patriarchs to see this. The rest of them, it's like, you're going to have as many kids as the sand on a seashore. Here's one grain. That's like, they carry the little grain around in a little glass vial like you get from a beach souvenir shop. And you're like, what's that? They're like, oh, it's my, it's my overwhelming fruitfulness. So you're like, that's one grain of sand. Okay. He's getting to see it. He had lots of grandbabies. So he's getting to see this. But here's the part he doesn't see. I'll give this land to your descendants. He doesn't even live in that land anymore. I'll give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Now, this is the orienting factor in everything that comes after. This is, even in exile, Jacob's memory of his life. What matters to me? God matters. God is the orienting factor of my life. Now, therefore, as I die, here is what I'm going to do to set this nation in order. The first thing is an act of adoption in verse 5. This is why I said you should highlight this verse. Your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. He's adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as his own sons so that they won't be viewed as grandchildren but as founding members of the nation, right? You've got to be a brother to be a tribesman, and they just got promoted up to brother, which in this family is maybe a dubious honor. But anyway, there they are. They're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. We've talked about this a lot. He didn't just randomly pick two other brothers. These are Leah's children, and these are his first two children. Reuben and Simeon are the first two. Reuben was bad. 
Simeon was angry. Remember, Reuben, Reuben was bad. He tried to take his father's concubine. And Simeon instigated Simeon and Levi's slaughter of the Shechemites over their sister Dinah. Those two, he's now making it official, have lost their status as the firstborn and secondborn sons in Israel. He'll pick this up again in chapter 49 where he says, Reuben, he curses, and Simeon and Levi, he says, are going to be scattered in the nation, which happens. Notice now that Reuben and Simeon have been displaced, so now the oldest firstborn is who? Reuben's gone. Simeon's gone. Who's left? Levi. Levi is now the next oldest child. Do you know why that's important? When we get to Exodus, which we're never going to do, but when we get to Exodus, God says, all the firstborn in the nation are mine. Why? Because he saved them in Exodus from the night of the destruction of the firstborn in Egypt. So, I saved them, but I bought them. They all belong to me. But in exchange for that, in ransom for that, I will accept who? Levi. Because he's now by order of blood in thinking the firstborn person. I'll take the firstborn tribe in separation and in, in redemption for the firstborn of the nation. And then they do this math game to figure out how many Levites there are and how many firstborn there are. And then they have to, the nation has to pay a ransom for the people that they don't have because there's not quite enough Levites. And so God buys Levi from him, but it fulfills Genesis 49 where they, um, Jacob says they're going to be scattered amongst the nations because what happens? They don't get an inheritance. They get little cities embedded in the rest of the nation's land. It's a really great gig, actually, because God redeems them and blesses them. God redeems and blesses what was otherwise their curse. But it's, what happens? Why does it happen? Because Jacob sets it up to happen this way. Now, the firstborn double blessing he's giving to Joseph. Joseph is his firstborn from his favorite wife, and he's doing what the law later says you can't do. However, I think Reuben probably pretty much disqualified himself in a way that the law would say was a good way to disqualify yourself. So we'll cut Jacob some slack and say he can do this. He takes Reuben and he takes Simeon and he goes Bloop, to the side. They still get possession. By the way, Simeon gets scattered into Benjamin's territory and then just fizzles out. Reuben, you never hear from him again. It's getting ahead to next week. No judges. No prophets, no kings, maybe a greeting card somewhere. And he establishes for Joseph two whole tribes. They're half tribes, sort of, but they're also full tribes because now they're counted as brothers. It seems like Simeon is the one that just kind of fades away in the population to make this happen. So he, this is an act of adoption in verse 5, and I said, highlight that because nobody ever can figure out, well, where did Ephraim and Manasseh come from? But they're not brothers. How come they figure it fit in here? This is the verse that makes it happen. It's interesting. Now, notice, there's a provision for this. Your offspring that have been born after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the names of their brothers and their inheritance. Okay, Joseph does not have a free pass on tribe creating. Okay? It's not like, hey, welcome to a new tribe every time he has a kid. No, they're going to get counted as one of their uncles, you know, one of their brothers' kids, if they have more. It doesn't seem like Joseph had any more sons, but just, just a provision. In case you have more sons, they're going to get counted either into Ephraim or Manasseh. You're not, they're not going to count as a third Joseph tribe. Now, verse 7 explains his thinking. 
As for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died to my sorrow. He's saying, in a sense, she died too early. She died before I would have hoped that she would. It was an untimely death. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. So what he's saying is, she died too early, but now I've raised her number of sons up to four, like everybody else got. Favoritism is still alive and well in this family. Now, verse 8 through 14 explains something else really significant. Because if you're sitting there with Moses, you're like, I'm a Manessite. I'm the firstborn. I'm like the boss person in Israel. Wait, why is Ephraim cooler? Okay, so we got to understand what happened here. Israel's got one last trick up his sleeve, basically. You know, he likes being tricky. There's no other explanation for why he likes being tricky other than he's Jacob, and we should be used to it by now. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Why did he say that? He's old. He can't see them. He's like me. I can't see you anymore, right? He can see shapes, but he doesn't know who they are. So what's going on in the back of his mind? Oh, this is history repeating itself. Dad blessed the wrong kids. I better do some identity verification here first, right? It's Joseph, so he's a little more trustworthy, but we're going to do some some identity verification before we hand out blessings on the wrong kids. We've seen this movie before in Israel's family, right? He's like, I know what I did to my daddy. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to fall guilty to my own tricks. So he, he does some identity verification, and Joseph probably knows what's up here. He's like, no, Dad, they're, 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 they're my boys. I promise you Reuben didn't sneak a grandkid in here somewhere. Okay? So he said, bring them to me, please, that I might bless them. And the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Joseph brought them close, and he kissed them and embraced them. It's just such a sweet moment. This is such a beautiful moment. I, I, I just can't even imagine the joy in Jacob's heart to have this moment with the grandkids that he never thought that he would have, that he thought Joseph had died. I mean, what a sweet moment for him to be sitting here remembering God's grace at the end of a life that's been so faithful to him. This is this, this extraordinary blessing, and I, I, I want to remind you of that as we think about Israel's hope, they know the kindness, the tenderness, the absolutely unexpected and unneeded goodness of our God. Don't ever forget that. God doesn't do things in a calculating, cold way. He is kind. He's the way we define kind. He is gracious and generous And as they're about to go into this 430 years, we have this palpable, huggable, kissable moment of remembering. Jacob did nothing to deserve this. This is the kindness of God to to bring this family to bear. And God's kindnesses and his promises are always like that. His faithfulness doesn't change. I've been memorizing uh, 2 Timothy with my daughter, and I'm just reminded again. If we're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This is his character. And the Israelites are going to have to hold on to his goodness through the years of pressure when they don't see it as much. But this is his kindness and his goodness. And listen to what he says. I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your children as well. Joseph took them from his knees, bowed with his face to the ground. They're old now, by the way. They're probably in their 20s or maybe even their 30s. Joseph took them both. They're kneeling now in front of the bed. Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right. He's got them all set up for dad because dad's old and frail. Uh, But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim who was the younger and left his 
his left hand on Manasseh's head, and then he gives this blessing in verse 15. Notice this blessing, and we'll finish as we go through this blessing. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. Notice the, the theology of this, the rich, not theology in, in terms of a book that you bought at the bookstore, but his, his overwhelming view of God in his life. The God before whom my fathers Abraham, Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Why does he say that? Because he doesn't have another word for the God who has come to him in person. I don't have a word for this yet in, in our theology. Later we'll come up with this word for Christophany. It means that, the, that God in a pre-incarnate form of Christ came to him and, and was with him. But this is a God who's been with him so close. He's, this angel is just a word for messenger. This, this one who's been with me personally to redeem me from all evil. Who, who brought me back into the land when my brother wanted to kill me and I didn't know how to go forward. This one who's been my kind shepherd all my life to this day. He's the chief shepherd. He's the one who knows how to make the sheep turn in from, you know, speckled to white and everything else. Jacob's this boss shepherd guy and he thinks of God in this way. The one who has tenderly cared for me in every aspect of my life, who's delivered me this God, bless the lad. And may my name live on in them and the names of my father Abraham and Isaac. May they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. May, may your children walk before this God and bring his name glory in the earth. What a sweet blessing. This is how he sums up his life. Of course, Joseph is distressed because he, he did the switcheroo for the, the last time. It's his last trick. And Joseph said, no, no, wait, not that one, this one. And Jacob says, I know, I, I'm not that old. It's like when you're helping your granddad across the street, you know, and you're like, and he, he reminds you, it's just my body that's frail. My mind is still here. You know, stop talking back to me, son. Um, I know who I did. But fortunately, he says, they'll both be great. We don't have the rival. Oh, I gave him the bad blessing like we did with Jacob and Esau. And this final blessing he blessed them that day, saying, verse 20, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. That's sweet. That's sweet. What? Like, how's that a blessing? May people compliment you someday. No. Wouldn't, you, wouldn't that be a sweet way to greet one another? Oh, may your life be like Daniel's life, on whom I've seen God pour out his faithfulness and kindness. Would that you had God's kindness in your life, like Daniel, who's been brought into the family of Christ and who's been blessed and sanctified and changed. Wouldn't, wouldn't you be like Josie, who I've seen God pour out his mercy on your life, right? You get, you get what he's saying here? It's a sweet thing. What a sweet, sweet thing. And what a reminder to us as we move through these blessings to all the tribes over the next week, well, two weeks from now, You've heard me hinting at it through this morning. We are a people under pressure. We are a, a weird, strange group of people brought together by God's purposes and held together by nothing more than his power, but held together by his power. We are a people who are different from the people around us, and we need to be able to orient and think about our lives in this world in, in a way that's oriented around what we've been told and Particularly, we're a people who are oriented by our hope. How did the Israelites survive and come together and flourish as a nation under 430 years of, of absolutely soul-crushing, identity-erasing persecution? Because they remember, God has a purpose and a plan with our people. And it's not just 
to bring us into a land. It's not just to show us his kindness. It's not just to fulfill a promise to my granddad. It's because he's going to bring about our genuine salvation. We'll see next week as we, or two weeks from now as we talk about Judah, this image of him as a, a lion who's so fierce to, to absolutely destroy his opposition, right? God's going to bring about a real salvation, just like he's brought about a real nation going into Egypt, one that you can touch and feel and taste, just like Jacob has touched and felt and kissed this blessing that God has brought on him. And we need that hope. We need to be oriented, lockstep around, as First Peter says, have our hearts fixed on the hope of his coming so that we might be sober for the purpose of prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for Moses and his extraordinary gift to to focus us on your plans and purposes for your people. Lord, may we find our story and your story, and may we endure the difficulties of this life, this week, the days to come, the decisions we have at work in a way that remembers, no, our God is kind, our God is powerful, he will bring us through, and he will build us and bind us together as a church for his glory. We pray it in your name, our Lord Christ, amen.